you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Genesis chapter 2, we are continuing our series in Genesis. Last week we looked at a new section in Genesis, uh, beginning with chapter 4, where it says that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth uh, when they were created. And we focused specifically, uh, verses 4 through 17, we focused specifically on the garden temple that God created, the first earthly temple. And today, we're going to uh, continue with this particular portion of Scripture, and we're going to focus on God's covenant of works with man. God's covenant of works with man. And so if you found your place, hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, up from the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your inspired, infallible word that you've given to us, Father. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've explored a number of these different perennial questions that people have asked who am I? Why am I here? One of those questions, of course, is why does anything at all exist? But last week, we, we encountered another question, and that question is, what is the Bible all about? And of course, we talked about how we could always we used to say, well, it's all about Jesus, and there's truth to that. But then the question is, well, what exactly does that mean? What is the overarching theme of the Bible? Is there an overarching theme? What is the Bible all about. And what we discovered is that the Bible, the story of the Bible, is about how the one true triune God of the heavens and the earth, he created the cosmos to be his temple, his dwelling place, where he would dwell with his people forever. Or to put it differently, a holy God making his holy dwelling with his holy people in a holy place. That's what it's ultimately about. And so what we see is, is that God, he creates man, and he commissions him as a royal priest to extend his kingdom over the entire earth, culminating in what we said is a 
heavenized earth, a glorified creation. That is the end. That is the purpose which everything is moving toward. And last week I said, this is the goal that God is trying to accomplish. Understand, that's not a good choice of words. God doesn't try to accomplish his eternal plan that that he's decreed from all eternity. He certainly will accomplish this plan. This is what he has decreed to accomplish, and this is what most certainly will be accomplished by the triune God. That's the overarching storyline of the Bible, and we discover that 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 overarching storyline of the Bible, it unfolds by way of covenant. And so one way to think of this is, think of a screenplay. A screenplay has one storyline, and that unfolds, there's different acts in the screenplay. That one story, there's different acts in the screenplay. Or you can think of a symphony. One symphony, and it has different movements. Well, it's the same thing with Scripture. Before time began, God wrote, as it were, the screenplay of his eternal plan of redemption in Christ, and that story unfolds progressively through history, and the major acts of the story are called covenants. Covenants, which are the means by which God enters into relationship with us. And what we discover is that there are three overarching covenants in the Bible. These are theological categories. When you hear these, you're going to be looking for your Bible where I don't see where the Bible talks about a covenant of works and a covenant of grace and a covenant of redemption. These are overarching theological categories that summarize for us what the scriptures are teaching from Genesis to Revelation. And so we see here on the screen, for example, we see these these three these uh, three overarching covenants. The first one, the first two are covenants that God makes with man in time, in history. So we see a covenant of works where God promises to Adam and his descendants after him eternal life on the basis of perfect, perpetual, personal obedience, the obedience that Adam would render. But of course, we know Adam doesn't render that obedience. He falls into sin, and then we fall into sin as well because of that. And then due to Adam's sin, God then promises to redeem sinners through faith in a promised mediator, a promised redeemer. That's the covenant of grace. We see that in Genesis 3.15, that the, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the servant. That's the covenant of grace. These two covenants is what the whole Bible is ultimately all about. It's what it's unpacking for us from Genesis to Revelation. But then if you want to understand the blueprint for all of God's redemptive plan, there's this covenant of redemption. This is the covenant that God initiated before time even began. This is the blueprint for God's plan of redemption. This is where the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they enter into the Latin word, the fancy Latin word is a pactum salutis, a, a pact of salvation, a covenant wherein they determine to save a multitude of hell-deserving sinners in and through the perfect work of Christ. And so the Father chooses a people in Christ by his grace alone. And then the Son is going to be, he's going to come now and be the representative for those people given to him by the Father. He's going to perfectly accomplish their redemption through his perfect life and sacrifice on the cross and bodily resurrection from the grave. And then the Holy Spirit comes now, and he perfectly applies that perfect redemption that was conceived of by the Father and accomplished by the Son. The Holy Spirit now applies that to all those 
who are being saved. And so we see here this glorious plan. There's one story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, and it unfolds through this idea of covenant, of covenant. And so today we're going to look at this first covenant that God makes with man, this covenant of works, this covenant of works. And the main idea of our passage is this, is that God created man to dwell with him forever on the condition on the condition of perfect obedience to his covenant of works. And so we're going to look at three points today. The first point is the establishment of God's covenant with man. Now, the first thing we see in our text, we looked at it quite a bit last week, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but we see the environment where this covenant is established. In verses 4 through 7, we see that God creates Adam from the ground of the land, notice, outside of Eden. He's created outside of Eden, outside of the garden temple, but then God places him there. So this is the land, though, where he is to subdue. Adam is to subdue, is to subdue that land. We, we learn in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. He's to take dominion over that. He's to fill the land. So you remember in Genesis chapter, chapter 1, we talked about the first three days of creation. God did what? He was forming the creation. He was, in effect, subduing it, and then the last three days of creation, God filled the creation. Well, Adam is given a similar task. He is to, to, to subdue the earth and then to fill it, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with image bearers of God. But we notice, though, that God doesn't leave him there in the outer land, as it were. He doesn't say, okay, Get busy now with multiplying and filling the earth and taking dominion. Instead, we notice in verse 15 that God puts Adam in the garden. Sovereignly, providentially, he breathes life into Adam. He forms him from the dirt of the ground outside of Eden. And then he takes Adam and he puts him in the garden temple of God. Now, this word put is a very interesting word. This word put in the Hebrew is the word Nuach, Nuach, and it has relation to the word rest. It's one of the meanings of this word. I think the primary meaning of the word is rest. Now, it's not the same word as Shabbat, the rest that we talked about in Genesis chapter, or Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where God rested, Shabbat, Sabbath, and we talked about the Sabbath rest. But there is a similarity, there's a similarity to these things that's clearly in view here, commentators pointed out. So, for example, in Psalm chapter 95, verse 11, it uses a form of this word, nuach, to describe God's rest in the promised land for Israel if they obeyed him. It describes the rest that God promised to Israel in the promised land if they obeyed him. Of course, they didn't, so God's he promises that they will not enter his nuach, his rest in the promised land. Now, why belabor all of that? Well, because, obviously because it's important, so we need to belabor it. But we recall, at least I hope we recall, that Moses is writing Genesis here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote the first five books of the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here we are, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. They're on the way to the promised land. The land that's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. That is, abundant blessing where God would dwell with his people. For them, the promised land was Eden restored. 
And so you've got to think of the story like this. We talked about one overarching story from Genesis to Revelation, and very often what God does is he uses different char characters to retell the story. And so in the Garden of Eden, what do you have? You have Adam. He's dwelling in the temple of God in the promised land, the first promised land, the true, a land flowing with milk and honey because God dwells with him there. But then what happens to Adam? He's a son of God. But what happens to him? He sins, and then what? He's exiled from the promised land, this land of Eden, the land, a land flowing with milk and honey in which God dwelled with his people. He's exiled from there. Well, then what happens later on in redemptive history? We see Israel now is constituted a corporate people of God. They, too, are called a son of God. And now they're delivered from their slavery and bondage to Egypt. And then they're brought into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, wherein God would dwell with his people. And they, they would experience tremendous blessings if they obeyed God. Blessings if you obey, cursed if you disobey. Well, we know how that story ends as well, don't we? Israel, the corporate son of God, disobeys God. So what happens to them? They are exiled from the promised land. And so you see a retelling, so to speak, of this story. So, so Israel sees this here, these, these allude, the, the things that Moses is saying in Genesis, and these things would have resonated very much with them. They would have, they would have been like, yes, oh, you understand exactly what Moses is saying. Eden is the first earthly promised land. And it is a picture of the ultimate promised land of heaven. And that's what we're looking for here is it's not just a restored Eden, but a glorified Eden that's held out to us now through faith in Christ. We'll get to that a little bit later. But we want to notice here it is there in Eden, in this first promised land, where God dwells with his people, where God rested Adam. Adam has Rest. He has shalom with God. He has peace with God in a pristine environment to flourish in every conceivable way with the prospect of entering God's Sabbath rest, the eternal rest of God, of seeing heaven and earth become one. He's in a pristine environment, though, and that's what I wanted to focus on now. And this pristine environment comes out in verse 9. We see God causes every tree that is pleasant to the sight. We talked about last week. Imagine how the beauty of Eden, how, how stunningly beautiful it, it must have been, and how everything here on earth you know, compared to Eden would have been, been like a dump. But then we see here it was good for food. He causes these things to spring up. Now we see this language about trees and, and, and good for food and pleasant for the sight. The idea we get of a garden is of a of a little tiny parcel of land in the backyard where you grow tomatoes and basil and garlic and oregano and onions. You know, all the essential things for a good sauce. But <laughs> this is more than that. This is more than that. This is a huge place. Now, you can certainly grow tomatoes and basil, and I'm sure Adam and Eve did. I'm sure they had the best sauce you can imagine. But this place is much bigger than that. Right? It's huge, this, this garden temple that God has here. And God has not withheld any good thing that Adam and Eve need to accomplish God's purpose that he's ordained for them, the purpose of extending this temple 
over the face of the earth. They have an abundance. They have an abundance of blessing. They have God dwelling in the midst with them, and they have an abundant food supply in paradise. What else? What could possibly go wrong? Right? They have it all here. God blesses them, lavishly blesses them. Now, there's an application here that I want us to see. Sin and Satan offer what they can't give. Sin makes promises to you that it can't fulfill. What does Satan promise you? Well, it promises you an abundant life. It, it promises you peace and satisfaction and joy. But it can't deliver on those promises ultimately. Only God can. And then sin and Satan, they try to make you feel like, well, God is withholding good from us. You know, God is just a big meanie in the sky. He doesn't want me to have good things. He doesn't. When the, the, the truth is, God wants you to have the ultimate best good thing, which is what? Himself. Himself. Jesus says that he gives us life and that more abundantly that's found in Christ. And so we see then here, God creates Adam. He places them in the garden temple. He places them in a pristine environment. But here's something to consider. In order to dwell with God in shalom, with the prospect of entering God's ultimate rest of heaven, he must be in a covenant relationship with God. So now, Adam is created in God's image, and as a creature in God's image, he must render obedience to God. This is what's required of him. But he can't be in an intimate fellowship with God unless God establishes that relationship with him. God, Adam can't demand God. God, thank you for creating me. Now I owe obedience to you, but now I want to have an intimate fellowship and communion with you. Adam cannot force that of God. God is the one who must establish that, and that's why covenant is so important. That's where covenant comes into view. So we see here, this slide, Westminster 7, verse 1 says this, the distance between God and the creature is so great. So think of this. Think of how great Adam was. Think of how great human beings are created in God's image. Yet, despite that, the distance between us and God is, is infinite. Right? The distance between God and man and the creature is so great that all the reasonable creatures, that is, creatures with souls like us, do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. What is the reward that you have? It's God, but you can't experience that. But by some voluntary condescension, God must stoop down to us, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Right away, we see something gracious that God does for man. I'll give you an example of this. A citizen owes obedience. We think of a long time ago when they had kings and kingdoms. A citizen in a kingdom owes obedience to the king, but he has no right to the palace. He has no right to the king's inheritance. And as a creature, Adam owed obedience to God, his king, but he had no right to the palace. He had no right to the inheritance. But God says, I'm putting you, I'm resting you in my palace as an heir 
to all that I have. And now this is going to be by way of covenant. To do that, he must graciously stoop down and make a covenant with him. Well, that raises the question for us, what exactly is a covenant? You know, it's a word that's kind of strange to us today, but it's a word that's found in every area of our lives, or the idea of it is found in basically every area of our lives. For example, marriage. Marriage is a binding pact between one man and one woman to live in as one flesh together before God. That's what marriage is. You think of your jobs. And a job, a job is an agreement. It's a covenant where the employer promises to pay you in exchange for services you render. You think of college. College is a promise to indoctrinate you, I mean educate you, <laughs> if you pay their cheap tuition and they will reward you with a worthless, I mean with a piece of paper called a degree if you complete their course of study. Now, all those things are examples of covenant, and, in the, and they, they have relevance to the Bible as well, but the Bible, it's a little richer than that. And so I like this definition here by Ligon, Ligon Duncan. He says on the slide, a divine covenant is a God-initiated, binding, living relationship with blessings and obligations. Right? So God says... I bind myself to you because I choose to do so. I bind myself to you in personal relationship, and here's what's required for that relationship to exist and to continue on your part. Here's the stipulations. And so then we see here this first point, God puts man in his holy place and establishes a covenant with him. He binds himself, but he says he's going to lay out, here's what's required for this relationship to continue. And that takes us to the second point, the nature of God's covenant with man. Verses 9, verse 9 and verses 15 through 17, God outlines the nature of this first covenant with man. So we see here a slide, the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, verse 2. It says, the first covenant of man with covenant with man was a covenant of works in which life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, that is, his descendants after him, upon, here it is, the condition of perfect personal obedience. But now immediately we have to ask the question, what do you mean God promises life to Adam? He was alive already in the temple the paradise of Eden. He had an abundance of trees. He had life. What life is promised to Adam? Well, it's the, it's the, it's the life of, of glorified life. It's eternal life of dwelling with God forever in a state of peace, in a state of shalom, where there's no possibility of death, where he is transformed and in a state of glorification, and that life is what's held out to him in the tree of life. The tree of life is there in the garden, in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's held out to Adam in the tree of life, if he obeys the stipulations of the covenant, is this 
to partake of the tree of life and enter into this state of glorified existence. This comes out in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4, 48 and 53. Understand, we said that Adam is created upright. He's created holy. He's created without sin. But there's something else that's at, that that's he lacks, that's held out in the tree of life. It's this glorified existence where, he's con, where he would be confirmed forever in a state of righteousness. Well, where is that found in the text, John? Prove that. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians verse 15, verse 48. And 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. You're probably familiar with that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul contrasts Adam with Christ. Now, it's very interesting. In 1 Corinthians 15, we, we, we read it earlier where it says in verse 20, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, all of God's people. But then down in verse 45, Paul says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, because God breathed life into him. The, set, the last Adam became, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So you see there's something else going on here that was offered to, to Adam. And, and so Paul says, let me be even more cleared here. So look at verses 48 to 53. As the man of dust, that's Adam, so also are those of the dust, that's us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is this eternal state, the heavenly, the heavenly realm. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised, what? Imperishable. That's what was held out to Adam. But he didn't receive it. Adam didn't have glorified life. It was held out to him in the tree. Adam had not partaken of the tree, and he was not permitted to partake of the tree. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, what happens? When Adam sinned, he's cast out. He's exiled from Eden. And then God stations the cherubim with the flaming sword so that he can't partake of the tree of life. So the point is this. If Adam obeys the stipulations of the covenant, he and his descendants grant, would be granted access to the tree and enter into glorified existence. That's what's held out to him and to us. Well, that raises the question, what are the stipulations of the covenant? Isn't this exciting? <laughs> What are the stipulations of the covenant? Well, it's spelled out in verses 15 and 17. And what we see here is a positive and a negative mandate. You know, God's law has positive things we must do and then negative things we shouldn't do. God says to love him with all, the, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's positive things we must do, and then he tells us to shout nots. The positive mandate is given in verse 15 through 17. And we see here, verse 15, God is... He's in the garden temple, and he's told to work and to keep, to guard the temple. We looked last week how this describes the exact work that the Levitical priest did in the tabernacle. So we see that Adam is created as the very first priest of God who must guard and cast out any intruder. Anything unholy who enters Eden, the temple, must be cast out. Adam should, should crush the head of the unholy intruder. That's his job. 
And then the work that he's supposed to fill is doing that, but also to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to take dominion over the earth. That's the kingly function, to advance God's kingdom. And so we see his first, the first great commission he's tasked to share God's word with Eve and his descendants to make them disciples of the Lord. They are the first worshiping community of God. When did the church begin? Well, well, the church began in Acts. After Jesus came on the scene and ascended into heaven, poured out the Holy Spirit, and then the church began. Well, we could say the New Testament expression of the church began on Pentecost. But the fact that God had one true worshiping community, a church, and in the Hebrew word is kahal, that began right here in the garden. That's the very first church, if you will, of God. And God commissions them to spread, gives them the great commission to go and to spread his kingdom throughout the world. So they're created as prophets, priests, and kings. That's the positive mandate. Keep the temple and then fill, multiply, subdue, take dominion. Do that. That's what you must do. What's the negative sanction? The negative sanction is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of that tree, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. And notice he says he commanded him. Like this is crystal clear. Don't eat of the tree. I'm not suggesting to you, I'm not even saying you must not eat of it. I'm saying you shall not eat of it. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in the day you, the day you eat of it, you shall what? You might die. No, you shall surely die. Well, that raises the question, well, what's, what's the big deal about the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? See, and the issue isn't that, that if you eat of the tree, you're going to understand what good and evil is. Adam already knew what was good and what was evil because he was created in God's image. He has God's law written on his heart, right? So he knows. God has just told him, this is what's good, this is what's evil. Don't do that. The issue with the tree, and it's interesting that the tree, the knowledge word knowledge here can be translated as, as choice. Could be translated the, the, the tree of the choice of knowledge of uh, the choice of, of good and evil. The issue is this: Is Adam going to submit to God's authority alone? Is he going to seek to to base all of his knowledge upon what God tells him? Is he going to seek to do what God says is right and what is wrong, or is Adam going to kick try to kick God off of his throne, become his own king, and establish his own kingdom, and determine right and wrong for himself. That's the issue. And guess what? That's the issue with us today. That's the very heart of sin. Who says? Who determines what is right and what is wrong? God or me? That's what we have today. With all of us, that's what sin is. Whenever I decide to sin against God, what I'm saying is, is that it's my way that's right. It's my way that's true. It's my way that brings satisfaction. It's my kingdom that counts, not God's. That's the issue with the tree. Will he submit to God, or will he seek to exalt himself and be a God unto himself? And so it's a covenant of works. The confession sometimes calls it a covenant of life. 
because life is given, or covenant of creation because it happens in creation. But at the heart of it is this idea of works. Adam must render perfect obedience. He must obey the stipulations. And if he does, he in creation will enter into a, a heavenly rest, a shalom, a state of glory. Heaven and earth will be heavenized. But if he disobeys, he would die. And not just him, but all of us. Because he is our covenant head. Well, that raises a question, another question. It's full of questions today. Where's the word covenant found in, in, in the text here? Just like the word temple. How can you tell us, John, about a temple, and there's no, I don't see the word temple here, so therefore it can't be a temple. How can you tell us about a covenant of works? I don't see the word covenant. There can't be a covenant. There's no covenant. There's no word covenant here. Well, a couple ways we can prove this is a covenant. First of all, here's a slide here. The divine covenant name is used. Remember last week we talked about in chapter 1, you see all through chapter 1, it's the name Elohim. Here, what do you see in your Bibles is the Lord, all capital O's Lord, that's the divine name, Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim, that's the divine covenant name that is used. So clearly, it's 11 times in chapter 2, so clearly Moses is making a point. The divine covenant God has made a covenant here. This is the very first one right here, right? That's one way you know this is a covenant. Secondly, you see all the key elements of a covenant are contained here. We see the parties that are involved. God and Adam and his descendants. The stipulations are blessings if you obey and curse if you disobey. And then the promises are signified. The promises are signified by the trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge. And we see the promises every time God makes a covenant, there is a sign that's associated with that. So in the covenant with Noah, we see the sign of the rainbow. In the covenant with Abraham, we see the sign of circumcision, which, by the way, is an eternal covenant. It has now been replaced by baptism. So we go on and on. There's always signs. Here the signs are the trees of knowledge of good and evil. And then, of course, the word doesn't have to be present in order for the concept to be there, right? We see this, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in the covenant made with David. Everybody agrees that God makes a covenant to establish David's throne forever, but the word covenant isn't found there. Yet we still call it a covenant. Why? Because the concept is. We can think of other examples. We believe, we talk about the Trinity. Where is the word Trinity in the Bible? It's not. But the concept is. So instead of saying we believe in one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we say we believe in the Trinity. That's much easier. Isn't that better? I like that better. So the word doesn't have to be present. So here's the situation. Adam was our covenant head and representative in the garden. Either his obedience and reward would have been credited to us, or his disobedience and the curse would have been credited to us. This comes out in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We see here on the slide, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so that death spread to who? To all of us. And because all of us sinned. Not only are we guilty in Adam, but all have sinned and are guilty in ourselves. When Adam sinned, we inherit, we talk about original sin. What is original sin? That is just not talking about the first sin. That means that we inherit the guilt of Adam's first sin 
that's imputed to us and also a corrupt, sinful nature out of which we commit all the sins we commit. And so, you say, that's not fair. I don't like that. Well, here's a question for you. Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Anyone? Have you... Have all of your thoughts been perfectly pure? Have all your words been full of grace and kind? Never, never a foul word? Of course not. No, we've all sinned and we all stand rightly condemned before a holy God because we're in union with our covenant head, Adam, and because of our own sin that we commit every single day. And so the point here is that we are born under this covenant of works in Adam, and because we are, this covenant of works remains in effect. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's still in effect today. When you're born into this world, you're born under this covenant of works. You're born in Adam, which means what? We have no hope in and of ourselves. Utterly hopeless in and of ourselves. Well, that's the sermon, everybody. <laughs> Come back next week and you'll hear part two. <laughs> Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. As we say, there's the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The gospel doesn't be begin in the New Testament. It begins in Genesis. So after the fall of Adam and Eve, God gives us a covenant of grace. He gives us the gospel. Salvation will come through the seed of the woman, this divine child, who will do what Adam failed to do. So that takes us to our third point, the fulfillment of God's covenant with man. Question for you, again. This is a trick question, by the way, okay? How good, no wait, is salvation, no, how good do you have to be to get to heaven? And is salvation by works? Uh-oh, people are like, I can see the smoke coming up from yours. I've heard, heard everyone answer the question for you. Is salvation by works? Yes. Salvation is by works. The requirement to get to heaven is perfect righteousness. God does not lower his requirements. He doesn't grade on the curve simply because we can't meet the standard. It's always perfect righteousness. If you want eternal life, you must have perfect, positive righteousness before God. And so Romans chapter 12, verse 21, it contrasts the two covenant heads again, Adam and Christ. Just as God condescended in giving a covenant in the first place, what does Christ do? He humbles himself to be our covenant representative. He comes to fulfill in the covenant of grace this covenant of works to render the perfect obedience that Adam didn't render and that we don't re render, which is required for us to get to heaven. And so Jesus comes then, the one who created all things, the heavens and the earth and everything in it, that one who was seated in glory, humbles himself, becomes the seed of the woman, born of the woman, and then he goes to the cross, he dies on the cross, he bears the flaming swords of God's justice against that, that was required for us. He bears all of that there on the cross, and then rises from the grave so that we could have eternal life. But here's the thing. It's not merely that Jesus died for us. It's that he also lived for us. Jesus had to have 
perfect righteousness for his death on the cross to count for anything. He had to love God perfectly with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength every second of every day. He had to love his neighbor perfectly every second of every day. Jesus fulfills all of the covenant stipulations. For Romans 5, 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. There is the heart of the gospel. Jesus, the mediator, accomplishes what we could not accomplish through his perfect death on the cross and his perfect life. And when you turn to Christ by God's grace, when he breathes life into you, when he brings you to himself, you are declared forgiven of all your sins and you are declared righteous in Christ because the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. The covenant of works has been fulfilled on your behalf and on my behalf because of what Christ has done. That's the good news of the gospel. I love what Gerhardus Voss says here. The covenant of grace is nothing other than a covenant of works accomplished in Christ, the fulfillment of which is given to us by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And so I know how much you guys missed my artwork, so here you go. To get a <laughs> In Adam, all die. In Adam, sin, misery, death, that's me. In Adam, the big frown. But then we see in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. And we have eternal life and a life of abundance in Christ. So we see the happy face there. And we're, we're waving our arms why, why is he waving that? Well, how do you get from here to there? How do you get there? God's grace, right? He comes to us and he raises us to spiritual life, gives us the gifts of saving faith and repentance so that now we can be translated into Christ and now we're in union with Christ and have all of these benefits in Christ. And now we're throwing our hands up in the air. Why? Because we're celebrating. We're praising the Lord. I can't, keep, I can't contain myself because I was in Adam, but now I'm in Christ. Look at all I have. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Right? That's, that's what we have now in Christ. And we Presbyterians will say, I am so happy I'm saved now. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let us go back to reading our, the Institutes of the Christian Religion here. <laughs> that's what we have. And so we see here one unfolding story the covenant here, the idea of the covenant, helps us to understand all the scripture. This is some applications for us to take home. Okay, what's this? You know, there's there's one. The Bible can be hard to understand, but understand it here through the lens of the covenant. It helps you see one story from Genesis to Revelation that God has worked out. A story which was written before time even began. A great story, a perfect story. And then we see what one person says here: Jesus wins us the reward of eternal life unspoiled righteousness and holiness in life. And so what should you do? Praise him, brothers and sisters. Praise him for what you have. 
when you're going through difficult times, never forget what you have in Christ. Never forget who you are in Christ, what he's done to fulfill this covenant of works on your behalf. And then we see that Christ succeeds where Adam failed in terms of the mandate. Fill the earth, take dominion. Well, how does Jesus do that? Through the Great Commission. That was the first Great Commission. Christ is at work now to do what? To fill the earth with his people. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Purchased by the blood of Christ. And he fills us with his spirit now. He says, go forth now and declare the good news. Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because we have this good news. Remember how Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works for you. Jesus is our covenant keeper. So the question for us today is who? Who? Who is your covenant head? Everyone has one. It's either Adam or it's Christ. If it's Adam, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no hope. If Christ, you have his perfect righteousness. You have eternal hope. You have God's peace. You're at peace with God. You have all of your sin debt paid in full. And so you ha if you haven't already, I plead with you to turn to Christ. Turn away from your sinful life and be transferred out of in Adam to in Christ by his grace. How, how do I do that? You simply acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. Save me, Lord. I want to be in Christ. I don't want to be in Adam anymore. Save me, Lord, by your grace. And if you have done that, rejoice. Rejoice in the amazing grace that God has, has bestowed upon you so abundantly. It's showered upon you in Christ. We were dead in Adam, but God, he breathed life into us. He raised us up to do what? To go forth now in the power of his spirit to bring the good news of the gospel to the lost, knowing that he is with us how long and how often? Always, to the very end of the age. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing gospel, this amazing story of the gospel. There's one consistent story from Genesis to Revelation that you've been working out by your sovereign power from the very beginning. Lord, thank you for saving us, delivering us in Christ. Now help us, Lord, to take hold of these glorious truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.